0: Cause baby now we got bad blood. you know it used to be mad love, so take a look what you've done, cause baby
1: now we got bad blood. Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region, I'm your host Candace Sampson. Who else is feeling a bit of news whiplash this week? It's been a whirlwind for sure, from the buzz around Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey at the Super Bowl, to the intense scrutiny of social media giants in the U.S., not to mention Doug Ford's ongoing changes to Ontario's healthcare system and the news about Canada's record low birth rate. It's a lot to take in and, well, staying informed is important. Sometimes it's okay to just take a breath and let your mind catch up. That's exactly what I'm hoping you'll do with me over the next hour here on What She Said as we delve into topics that matter to Canadian women. Here's what's coming up. In this week's first interview, we're diving into the critical and ongoing situation in Gaza, discussing the recent ICJ ruling and its implications with Diana Sarosi from Oxfam Canada. Diana shares Oxfam's stance, their global call to action, and Canada's role in this complex geopolitical landscape. Anne Brody and I will discuss some powerful entertainment choices this week, including the movie Rue, based on the Canadian Reads 2015 book, the CBC series Allegiance, set in Surrey, B.C., and Three Little Birds, a new series by Sir Lenny Henry on BritBox, exploring the journey of Jamaican immigrants to Britain in the 1950s. Next, we looked at the often misunderstood issue of eating disorders, exploring the complexities, societal pressures, and steps towards healing and understanding with Shaleen Jones from Body Peace Canada. Moving on, I'm joined by Jen Hayward, a Métis woman, comedian, and consultant who is helping non-Indigenous and Indigenous people towards reconciliation. In today's society, where we often find ourselves calling people out rather than calling them in, Jen is opening dialogue and sharing lessons weekly with her newsletter. Then we take a look at Angela Langlois' novel, What the Three of Them Knew, set in Toronto, which delves into themes of friendship, family, and the complexities of fertility resonating with many Canadians. Finally, I'm joined by the dynamic Chris McMartin, who joins me to discuss the resilience and adaptability required by small businesses in the post pandemic world, especially for women entrepreneurs. We discuss strategies for sustaining and growing businesses in today's uncertain times. So grab a comfy spot and let's ease our way through these topics together, finding a bit of calm in the storm of our fast paced world, right here on 1059 The Region. In this next interview, we're looking at a critical and urgent issue that has captured global attention, the situation in Gaza. Joining me now is Diana Cerosi from Oxfam Canada, who will shed light on the organization's stance gay ruling, the implications of their recent statement, and the call to action for global leaders, including Canada's role in this complex geopolitical landscape. Welcome to What She Said, Diana. Thanks for having me. I'm really
2: pleased to be able to talk about this very important issue.
1: Can you provide us with an overview of the current situation in Gaza and why Oxfam Canada has decided to launch a campaign targeting arms transfers to Israel?
2: Yes. So Oxfam has been working in Gaza for many decades and we've never seen anything like this before. Um, obviously, there have been other escalations in the past, but this is really at a new level um, in terms of the number of displaced uh, that we're seeing there. Um, 1.9 million people have been displaced from their homes, um, you know, to 0.2 million people are uh, imminently at the risk of famine. Like it is really horrific. Um, there is no clean water. Um, people are sort of sleeping in these makeshift tents in the mud uh, when it's when it's really rainy. Um, they have no access to um, yeah food or anything. And so by the day people are growing more and more desperate and you know, obviously, one has to eat, one has to drink, right? And so um they're making really tough choices in terms of what they're drinking and what they're eating, and none of it is healthy or safe. And so obviously, this is also really escalating the number of diseases um that are spreading. But with the healthcare system, completely collapsed again there's just nowhere for people to go to get treated uh, for some of these diseases so it's it's Really, really desperate times.
1: A couple of months ago, I had uh, your colleague, uh, Lauren Ravon, on the show. She mentioned that Oxfam uh, was unable to get
2: into Gaza to help. Is that still the situation? So we have been able to um, rent a warehouse inside Gaza and had um, at least three trucks arrive there by now. But again, when you think about the scale of need um, that we have, it's really just a drop in the bucket or not even. Um, uh, A big focus of us has been to try and restore some of the water facilities um, inside Gaza. But considering how destroyed the infrastructure is, it is a huge challenge, Um, a huge challenge in terms of just the engineering that's involved in that, but then also having the right materials and so on. Um, Yeah, it it continues to be a really dire situation. Um, We are working with some partners on the ground, um, to continue to distribute a bit of food, uh, a hygiene kit here and there. Um, but, um, yeah, it's nowhere near the scale that it should be. And the International Court of Justice recently
1: issued a statement in response to South Africa's case against Israel. Can you explain the significance of this statement and what it means for the people of Gaza?
2: Yeah. Um, so this was this case was brought um, to the International Court of Juris, um by South Africa in order um, to provoke um, a ruling um, on the basis that there might be possibly, plausibly be genocide committed um, against the people of uh, Palestine um, by, you know, using war crimes like starvation as a weapon of war, forced displacement, and so on. And um, yeah, the ruling, I think, was pretty clear um there is a plausibility of genocide happening obviously um that kind of investigations will will still take months um to conclude but um the court has ordered some preliminary measures um to make sure that you know actions prevent uh, to, to take actions that would prevent genocide and so these include things like, um, the delivery of humanitarian aid, um, you know, uh, uh, well, it didn't go as far as calling for a ceasefire, but the preliminary measures, um, that it called for, um, do, you know, accumulate to a situation where it would be m- much more feasible um, to deliver aid because that's really also one of the key problems. So not only is Israel controlling everything that's going inside um, uh, the Gaza Strip, so it's really difficult for the trucks to get through the borders because every single item is in, in inspected and so on. Um, But also, the bombardment inside makes it completely impossible to distribute. Um, uh, some of this aid to the population. Um, you know, there's no more fuel inside, so there are no trucks inside, right? Um, and yeah, so the continued bombardment really makes it impossible, um, uh, to provide some sort of aid, um, to the people of Palestine. And so in that sense, um, I think the ruling was really welcome um in you know giving that legal backing of how horrendous the situation is um and you know under the genocide convention um third parties have a uh, obligation to prevent genocide so that's why we're really calling on other countries now to step up their pressure um to make sure that they're living up to their obligations, right, um, in this situation. And so one of the key things that we're asking for right now is that Canada suspends its arms transfers um, to Israel as uh, some of those parts and weapons are being used in the bombardment of the Palestinian enclave.
1: Tell me more then about what Oxfam Canada is asking uh, people to do.
2: Yes, um, so... Our foreign minister, Minister Melanie Jolie, actually has the power, uh, to suspend, um, arms permits. Um, so these are, because arms are a controlled good. Um, so for these kind of goods to, to leave, um, Canada, the minister actually, um, uh, approves these permits. Um, so these are export permits. Um, And so by suspending these permits, the the manufacturers wouldn't be able to export these goods. And these are, um, you know, parts that are. Being used in the F-35 F thirty five fighters, for example, that have been very much involved in the bombing of Gaza, um, so these are this would really be an important step in um, yeah, and first of all, ensuring that Canada is not complicit in what is happening uh, there, but also really really sending a very strong signal um, to Israel um, that the international community is not. Uh, standing behind um, this level of violence and war crimes being committed against any people, really. How does Oxfam
1: propose that those responsible for violations on both sides be held accountable? And what role can the international bodies like the ICJ? Play in this process.
2: Yeah, we have been very clear from the beginning that you know we absolutely condemn um, the initial attacks by Hamas um, and their continued um, holding of hostages. Um, absolutely, those are war crimes in them in themselves, and we don't wish upon anyone for these to live through these kind of um, uh, horrific attacks, um, and so. I think, you know, all of our statements are calling for cessation on both sides of the violence, the release of hostages um, and so on. But one thing that I do want to make clear, um, we can't make, um, you know, the dismantling of Hamas or the release of the hostages conditional um, for the delivery of aid. Right. Um, Because, again, Yes, it absolutely needs to happen. But by holding back on the library of aid and uh, continuing the bombardment and atrocity against the Gazans, they're basically under collective punishment. And again, that is something that is outlawed in international law and um, not something where that we should be supporting.
1: Diana, I, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. And if people want to know more about uh, what you're doing and or how they can help, what's the be- where is the best place for them to go?
2: Yeah, really our website, um, Oxfam.ca. Um, right there on the homepage, they'll find more links and information um, on, first of all, the, the action they can take um, to call on the foreign ministers to suspend arms exports. Um, but also more background on the kinds of things that we have been able to do, but also what we're calling for. Um, yeah, lots lots, and lots of content there.
1: All right. Thank you so much for joining
2: me today. Thank you so much.
3: More with Candice Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
1: Singing sweet songs, melodies pure and true, saying this is my message. It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies with Anne Brody. And Anne, let's start with Allegiance, if you don't mind, because it's uh, set in Surrey, BC, where What She Said airs every week. So that's really exciting. Hi, Surrey. I will. It's a terrific new series
4: from uh, the CBC, and it stars Supinder Rach as uh, Sabrina. Now, she's a, an extremely gifted rookie. She's just graduated the police academy. Um, the same day her father, A federal minister is arrested on treason charges so it's you know he's at her her graduation so it's all politically motivated or so it seems to be so it's about racism against uh uh far uh, eastern people it's also about her trying to get by in a sexist police division even though she's brighter than most of them um and it's about women's contributions to, uh, law and order in, in uh, insofar as entertainment goes. When you think back to the seventies, when it all started with, uh, Cagney and Lacey and there were lots and lots of police women, lots and lots of shows concerning women in, uh, the forces. So to me, it's about time there was something new. We haven't seen any in a while. I guess we've still got law and order and all of that, but a new one and a Canadian one. So it's, uh, it's I recommend it highly. Um, so she's in a very uncomfortable place. Plus she's helping investigate some far right extremists. So, and it's all, you know, timely Canadian stuff as these things kind of seep up. So now that begins on the 7th on CBC and then on Jim.
1: All right. Wonderful. All right. Let's talk about are you? This looks really good. And and I think also timely as well.
4: Yes. Yeah. Do you remember when people used to talk about the boat people in a sort of derogatory fashion? Um, oh, absolutely. And they were uh, refugees from Vietnam and surrounding area that was hit by war in the 70s and 60s. And um, it's about a woman named Kim Thu who was taken as a child. Her parents escaped with her to Quebec of all places. Um, and they have to begin again. Uh, they know nothing about the culture. They try really, really hard, but they do know that Canada is a place of relative freedom. Now the journey that they took is absolutely hair raising and, you know, would have, would have happened with so many thousands of boat people, hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, So it's good to be reminded of that journey that people took years ago for freedom in Canada and to welcome in immigrants who can uh, contribute to the society. Now, Thu has gone on to become a, a very, very renowned author. She's won a ton of literary awards. So, you know, that's just one contribution that her family made. So it's about her settling in, basically. And there's this wonderful moment. When a Quebec family takes her to their farm and they sit around a bonfire and sing, I mean, a typically kind of Canadian, you know, French-Canadian pastime, uh, there's so much hope in it and backbone. They went through unimaginable events, so it's good to see that they landed and as as others did and became contributing members of society and felt safe.
1: And I think it's worth pointing out that this is sort of representative of the journey that a lot of people who come to Canada go through. It's harrowing. It's hard. They're leaving their homeland and then they get here and they are received often with a coldness and racism that is completely unacceptable. So this is a really great story right now. So I I think everybody should, should watch this one. And yeah. speaking of uh, yeah. immigrating, let's now, talk about
4: Three Little Birds. I have fond memories of Lenny Henry, who was uh, a comedian in England, and he starred in Chef. Um, He was married to Don French for 20 years or so. But anyway, he was knighted in 2015. His family came from Jamaica to the UK in the 50s. Uh, And it's the story of his aunties. <laughs> what a story. First of all, they had to. One of them leaves her children behind because it just she's seeking a place where they can make more money, have better lives, and then eventually she'll bring them over. But she misses them dreadfully. And the other two, one's there for to find a husband, preferably a wealthy one. And the other one um, is like a mini Marilyn Monroe. And she's looking for a career as a movie star. And her inspiration is Elizabeth Taylor. So it's about their adventures. And they, of course, face racism and all of these problems that existed, especially in the, in that time period in England. Um, but they were never cowed. You know, they fought the fight. They remained optimistic. They encountered incredible difficulties, including people who would take things from them and, and, uh, abuse and, and manipulate them. But their character, their sense of self and, Optimism is just so exciting, and I have an interview with uh, Lenny and uh, three of the actors on
1: the uh, on the website, so you'll see that. And it is just a delight watching the trailer. I was sort of drawn into the period piece, though. Like it's it's set in the what year? What era yeah. is it set in? It's the fifties, yeah.
4: And don't you love those floral uh body fitting dresses that they wear? They're so pretty. They're so. Like later Dior, <laughs>
1: early yeah. Dior
4: inspired by.
1: <laughs> it's 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 a it, it's a great subject matter, but it's just sort of offset too by these really amazing visuals. I thought you know the oh, color yeah. and it's the brightness, very colorful, yeah. Yes. Just, and then you get to go to Jamaica a few times and
4: see the the life there. It's very inspiring. Um, so you know, and be sure to watch the interview with Lenny, and he says it wasn't all roses, but. There you go. Life isn't.
1: <laughs> no kidding. All right, and thank you so much. Uh this will be up on what she said talk.com with others of course uh that you've reviewed this week and we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. In this next interview, we're shedding light on a pressing issue that affects many Canadians, eating disorders. Joining me now is Shalene Jones from Body Peace Canada, an advocate with over two decades of dedication to supporting those impacted by eating disorders. In this brief but impactful conversation, we'll touch on the challenges, recent trends, and the vital work being done to provide hope and assistance. Shalene, welcome to the show. Hello. All right. So can you give us a snapshot of sort of the current state of eating disorders in Canada? Absolutely. So eating disorders are the third most common mental
5: illness in Canada. They impact um, folks from all different walks of life, all genders, all body types. We often think of anorexia as being an eating disorder, and it absolutely is, but it's the least common of all the eating disorders. So this is an illness that impacts many people. Um, It's very complex, very serious, and yet Funding has remained chronically low for treatment and support across Canada the last 25, 30 years.
1: We recorded a longer podcast, and I want people to go over and find that um, after today's show. But one of the most surprising things that came out of that for me is that this is not girls. This is also having a big, huge impact on boys with a 416% increase. Why is that? Mm-hmm. That's a great point, and we used to think that
5: folks who had eating disorders were predominantly young, affluent girls. Um, and as we're learning more, we're understanding that they impact um, folks from all different backgrounds, genders, and walks of life. I think we're getting better at recognizing eating disorder symptoms in young men, um, and we we've changed the criteria for, for defining what is an eating disorder too. So it used to be you have to have, um, not getting your period anymore as a criteria for diagnosis, and of course that rules out boys altogether. So I think, um, we're getting better at identifying eating disorders in boys and men and uh, gender nonconforming people. But there's also so much focus and emphasis on our world in controlling one's body weight and exercise and restrictive eating. And we know that repeated restrictive eating significantly increases your chances of developing an eating disorder. And so as we see that restrictive eating habit or activity, um, More in in men, we're seeing more eating disorders as well.
1: So Body Peace Canada plays a really crucial role in supporting supporting individuals with eating disorders. Can you highlight one or two key initiatives you're currently focusing on? Oh, what I love about Body Peace Canada is that you can register for free
5: and then you get a list of actions that you can take right away. And that includes self-directed learning, self-reflections. We have a variety of peer support programs too. And so from, you know, the comfort of your home, um, you can learn more. You can really kind of delve into um, some resources for your own recovery. And most importantly, you can connect with others who have been through an eating disorder, who have been in recovery for many years or who are recovered and have been trained to safely provide support and validation and encouragement. So it really is a community you can connect with.
1: And the journey towards recovery can be long and complex. Um, you know, we've, we've got into that deeper in the podcast. But from your perspective, what's one critical element that can make a difference for those battling an eating disorder? A couple of things. I, I think that it's so important to be compassionate with ourselves. You know, we're
5: humans and, uh, you know, we're, we're living our lives in this meat suit on this planet and doing the best we can. And so being really compassionate towards ourselves. Um, and paying attention to that, that negative inner voice. Uh, I think that recovery is about practice and it's deepening your practice and your connection to yourself and understanding what you need in the world um, and practicing your skills and then connecting to your community and and finding finding your people that you can get support from. Um, and not everyone has people in their lives right away that they can turn to. And, and that's one of the reasons I'm I'm so so pleased about Body Peace Canada. Um, is that you can find your community there.
1: So Body Peace Canada is online available for anybody across the country uh, and can register for free. So where can they go to register? Um, do you share resources online for somebody who might be nervous about jumping in so they just do a little more reading? Absolutely. And we recognize that, you know, it, it, sometimes you're not sure.
5: Like, is this an eating disorder? Like my relationship with food and eating may just be weird. You know, is this something I should be concerned about? Um, so th- there's, like you said, is you register. We've got a couple of quick questions to ask you. Um, you could do a self-assessment with them. There's like six quick questions to get a sense of, you know, could this be an eating disorder or, or not? Um, and we can guide you to some resources. So if you want to just check it out. You create your account, poke around, um, do some reading, check out some of the resources. Um, and if you feel like this is not for me, you know, you, you can come back if you feel like you might really want to check it out again. There's, there's no obligation. So we really encourage folks
1: just to check it out. And quickly, you know, just we, we're really focusing on the person with the eating disorder. For people who love somebody with an eating disorder or that they think has an eating disorder, any words, uh, messages that you would like to give them or words of support yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and it's, it's a really challenging role to care for someone who you
5: see as suffering. So having compassion towards yourself, getting support. Um, we offer a, a family peer support as well, um, knowing the role that parents play. So find support for yourself, learn more about eating disorders, um, and really uh, looking for how you can support that person in a way that's going to be meaningful for them and taking your cues from that person. If you have a young person in your life, a, 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 Young person, like a child or a young teen, um, going to your family doctor, presenting your concerns to your family doctor beforehand. Um, but if you're concerned about a young person um, who whose symptoms are concerning you, with you know weight loss or gain or what have you, um, take that really seriously. Pay attention to your your spider senses, um, and and talk to your family doctor right away.
1: All right, quickly. So then, uh, one more time, then, what's the website and social channels?
5: bodypeacecanada.ca. And you can follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at
1: BodyPeaceCanada. Canada. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today, Shalene. Thanks so much. Something we do far too often in today's society is call people out instead of calling them in. This often causes one side to dig in and cement their opinion even further, even when handed overwhelming evidence to the contrary. So how do we address this? It starts with respectful dialogue, and that's why I'm so thrilled to introduce you to Jen Hayward. Jen is a Métis woman, comedian, and consultant with over 20 years of experience in Indigenous policy and justice. Her extensive background includes national training for parole officers, consultations with Indigenous communities and elders, and writing a syndicated column for CBC Radio. She is also the creator of Reconciliation Weekly, the topic of today's discussion and the call-in we all need. Welcome to What She Said, Jen.
6: Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Candice.
1: Mm-hmm. I was thrilled when you uh, emailed me and told me about what you're doing. So can we start with what Reconcilia- Re- Reconciliation Weekly is, and then what compelled you to build
6: it? Um, certainly. It's a very easy um, weekly read um, that comes with, it has one profile of an Indigenous person to help break down stereotypes. Um, it comes with a lesson. So it could be an elder's teaching. It could be a historical lesson. It could be just something that, hey, you might not know this. And it always has an action prompt. So, you know, two or three things that you could do in your day-to-day that you may not have thought of. And it could be something as simple as go follow 10 TikTok creators who are Indigenous to shake your algorithms up and things like that. Um, and it came about, um, I'm on a lot of moms groups, even though my kids are old and I don't know why I'm still on these group. Uh, but and on them and I, and I always get angry on September 30th for the national day of reconciliation, because it's all about everyone else's kids and making sure they get the orange shirts and it's important, but it's such a hubbub is given that day. And then a week later, it's like Thanksgiving and no one's even thinking about these issues. And I thought, what could we do more? And I thought, well, I can use, you know, my experience in bridging corporate and culture. So I'm a Métis woman who's worked in government, business, nonprofit, in community, um, in the prison system, and so I have this interesting way of explaining things in a way that people understand. But also, as you said, I do think there's a place for calling out, you know, when people are being murdered, and there's horrible things going on. Absolutely. But people not knowing things is not a reason to call someone out. It's encouraging them, hey, why don't you come and, you know, listen to or read my newsletter, and maybe you'll get just just a little bit, a little bit of a glimpse. And all it is, is it's not a huge initiative that no one can do. And that's why people don't do things is because it's such a huge issue, but it puts things in your frame of reference. So if you're in a position hey, I just learned about that, or I could help with that, or I didn't know that, maybe I'll stop doing that. That's offensive. It just helps people, but it's all about reading and reflecting. It's not necessarily me educating. It's here are some facts. As I know them, here is a person and what they've gone through. Here are the things. And then we have a little journal that I send every week. They get a downloadable page to reflect on it. So I found the people who have signed up so far are really in it. Um, so some schools have gotten in it and they do it as they're part of their classroom on, weekly. Families sit down together once a week and they go through the reflection questions because they're not horrible. Here I am guilting you into helping Indigenous people. It's we all inherited this together. So let's find ways to work together to make small improvements.
1: Uh, there is no question that non-Indigenous readers are going to glean a lot from this. But do you find that your Indigenous readers are also learning uh, as you go?
6: Well, I think so. I mean, I use myself with all of my example. And I was interviewing a former chief of Taduli First Nation. And of course, there's so many nations across Canada. I was not familiar with the entire resettlement process they lived in paradise and then they were relocated to Churchill, went to residential school all of the things and then once all the resources of that land was stripped off they were relocated and resettled back and i didn't know that and so you know even for me learning and and that's how we learn from people is by hearing stories everyone has a story indigenous non-indigenous so yes indigenous readers Can read about that. Some people don't know anything about Inuit culture, Métis culture. Métis is a very interesting topic out here because it certainly means something a little different out West and a little different when you go Quebec Eastern. And so it's quite a fascinating thing. So everyone can continue to learn. And it's because it's such an easy read once a week, I encourage it. There's some great books and great resources out there, but they're heavy topics. If someone said I want to read uh, this, you know, a huge 500-page uh, book on residential schools. They might not want to do it. it it's uh, it, it's depressing. We're going to talk about it, but we're going to talk about it in a way of this is why things are the way they are and what can we do to make it better. It's the so what. When I do Indigenous or perceptions training, I always end with a so what. You've learned something. You can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So what's one thing you're going to change? And that's whenever I learn something. I always. Okay, so what? Because I've been to Zambia a few times now in my life. Let me tell you, it has been a huge learning curve, learning about other indigenous nations, you know, in Africa and different things. And, and there's always this, so what? Now that I have this knowledge about what a poor country this is, and I have this knowledge about what they're doing, so what? What am I going to do about it? I am just one person. And that knowledge helps me, this is one thing I can change. If I have a chance to share information about them, I'm going to do it so that other people are aware that these amazing people exist. Do you have a favorite story that you've shared? Oh, all my stories are favorite. <laughs> this is a storyteller, but um, for me when I when I entered I, I went from, you know, Metis young woman in Saskatchewan and I moved to Ottawa to work in the federal government, in the prison system, I thought I knew everything. And, you know, as you do in, in your late 20s. And I found out I knew nothing. Uh, I worked with 134 elders. And what I learned about my elders is, when there's so much diversity in the teachings, but also they like to mess with me a lot. Um, so one basic teaching that, you know, I had out West, but I came here and, and, and Elder David from Kingston told me about... Um, At nighttime, uh, around the Thanksgiving area, you put or time you put a plate of food out. You you bury it um, for the Great Spirit bear as a thank you to all creation. And I stared at him for a long time. You know, being the 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 comedian as well, and I was like, "Yeah, does the bear come and eat it?" Like, I really wanted to know what the belief system around that was. Because, and he was like, "No, dummy, the animals eat it as a metaphor." And it was just, you know, how straightforward. (laughs) people are, that they, but they're going to, elders are going to challenge you that, you know, I couldn't just be part of work and not participate in ceremony. That was not even an option. It was like, you're going to sit here and you're going to be part of it. And that's how I was pushed against my own spirituality, meaning I don't like any, right. It's, I have my own issues and it was very helpful. So I think I have a zillion stories like that of myself. And I think I've been storytelling for so long as a comedian, as a writer for CBC that I want to tell other people's stories. People have heard the Jen Haywood stories, right? I want to get to, to the story. And one of the ones coming up is the nearest and dearest to my heart. Um, it's the grandma of someone we fostered for two years when she was two. Um, and unfortunately, um, the child died at age 15 of fentanyl poisoning. And three of her, uh, like her mom and her aunt and her dad did as well, all of fentanyl poisoning. Mm. And so we're interviewing the grandma who was part of residential school and we're show a casing. And so this is kind of why my passion for my people has come back is this death is only two years old and it keeps me motivated that that was an unnecessary death. We could have been working towards this, but um, there's a thousand reasons why not. And so, you know, the more people who know about Nakia who know about, she's just one of so many children out there, 53% of everyone in child welfare in Canada is indigenous right now. And that is unacceptable, right? We are 5% of the population. So there's still so much work to do, but I really focus on the, so what let's, let's get energized and do something. Uh, and it teaches people how to listen and react as opposed to, I'm angry about everything. I'm going to tell indigenous people how to fix the problems. Like it's, it's very, um, come from the community. It would be like me going to Zambia and saying, here's how you fix your problem. No, that's not what I do. I listen. How can I best help you with my resources that I have or do not have? Incredible.
1: This is a lot of work to take on. Do you have help?
6: Uh, yeah, my husband. Well, my husband does a, what I call scraping. Um, uh, the, it, the easy part is doing the actual interviews. These are all people I know so far. I haven't had to stray, uh, you know, and I, I've reached out to actually a few um, celebrities and things like that, maybe for later on. But it's talking to people's passion, writing the stories. It doesn't take me long to write. So not that part, the sales and all that sort of thing, for sure. I have a little bit of help, but mostly I'm doing it by myself and people are lighting up to tell their stories because nobody's asked before.
1: Wonderful. Jen, you're a delight. And I have to tell people listening that I you uh, signed me up for a, a complimentary uh, membership to receive your newsletter. I am loving the stories that you're sharing. I've gone through and read a bunch of them. Um, so I really encourage people to sign up. Where can they do that, and where can they keep up with all that you're doing?
6: Uh, Okay, well, they can go to reconciliationweekly.substack.com. I haven't upgraded to my own thing, but if you Google Reconciliation Weekly, I'm the only one that comes up. And uh, Jen Hayward, just find me on Facebook uh, or LinkedIn. I probably should be more active on LinkedIn, and that's a, a goal for 2024. Um, and I do have a couple of websites, but they're a little dormant. So really, if you find the newsletter, that's the best thing to do. And, uh, Google my name, Jen Hayward, and you'll find all sorts of things. 90% of them are good. Uh, and the 10% just you know, remember 49 have lived a life. So
1: Jen, thank you so much for joining me. And I thank you for reaching out. I I was, I mean, you know, my reaction when I got your email, I was like, yes, yes. Come on. We got to talk about this. So thank you.
6: Well, and thank you. That's what allies do is they provide space for indigenous voices. And I'm really happy you did this. Miigwetch. Have a great day. Thanks. You as well.
1: In this next interview, we're taking a closer look at a new novel that touches on themes of friendship, family, and the complexities of fertility. What the Three of Them Knew by Angela Langlois is a story set in Toronto spanning almost two decades and explores the lives of two friends, Alyssa and Heidi, and their intertwined families. This novel delves into the emotional journey of fertility struggles, a topic that resonates with one in five Canadians and the ethical and legal nuances of using donor eggs. But it's not just about the challenges. It's also a celebration of the strength of friendship and the unexpected ways life can unfold. Angela, welcomed What She Said.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Candice.
1: Your, your novel really navigates a sensitive topic, you know, fertility struggles, through the characters of Alyssa and Evan. What inspired you to explore this theme, and how did you approach the research involved, especially considering the legal and ethical aspects of donor eggs compared in Canada versus the U.S.?
0: Right. Well, I had listened to a lot of podcasts and followed people on social media and read a lot about celebrities talking about how they were going through fertility struggles and how they um, were either using um, uh, eggs that were donor eggs or their own eggs that either they would, um, have implanted, um, into them or use a surrogate. And one theme that I saw over and over was that, um, people in the U S were talking about how they had maybe five embryos that were healthy and could be implanted and three were female and two were male and which did they want to implant now? And maybe they could implant the other gender for a second child. Um, or they knew, oh, all of them are the same gender. So this is the gender of child we'll have if we get pregnant. And then the people in the, in Canada were talking about how they did not have the option to choose which gender. Um, it was considered, um, making it a commodity instead of just, um, wanting to become a parent for the love of becoming a parent.
1: The the title "What the Three of Them Knew" hints at really deep secrets within the story. So, without giving too much away, because we want people to go get the book, can you share how you developed these secrets and their impact on the narrative and the characters involved?
0: For sure. Well, we see Alyssa and her husband Evan go through the emotional journey of um, wanting to become parents, frustrated that after years they can't, and then uh, when they go and discover that Alyssa has weak eggs, just the complete overwhelming, um, sadness and, um, then taking the next steps, looking into what they could do. Would they want to adopt? Would they want to, um, use a donor egg, um, which can be either, um, can be from someone, you know, can be from an online catalog. Um, so, and then we see, um, her go on that journey and decide to do. So the novel
1: also touches, you know, and you, you touched on this a little bit at the top of the interview, you know, the idea of playing God with the ability to select the gender of embryos in the U.S. versus Canada. What are your thoughts on this ethical debate and how do you think it shapes uh, societal views on fertility treatments?
0: Well, I definitely thought it was uh, interesting that with Canada and the U.S. being so close, we share a border, there is this major difference. Um, I can see How, um, you know, Canada really views it as, um, if you want to become a parent for the love of becoming a parent, that's what this process is for. And it's not about selecting, uh, which gender you get to have. That's not necessarily up to us to decide. Um, and then I think it can also raise the ethical question of, um, what if you're lucky enough, you have five sons and you just in this lifetime want to have the opportunity to maybe have a daughter. And if you were to take this process and and then, um, you know, only want the female embryos, well, A, what if there aren't female embryos? Are you going to, when someone else who just wants to be a parent could have had that opportunity to, um, at the fertility clinic, are you really just going to walk away. Um, So I can see where the idea of if you want to become a parent, absolutely, this process is here to help you. But it's not up to us to get to choose whether we have sons or daughters. It's about the healthiest embryos being implanted.
1: It is such a complex topic. And, And in the book, though, as well, you sort of weave humor into it. So how did you balance those lighter moments with this really serious theme?
0: Well, I wanted people to not come away from, you know, a session reading my book sort of like saddened. I want them to feel the emotion. Um, and I, a lot of the humor did stem from funny things that had happened to me over the years. I, um twisted it a little bit to fit the characters, but they're just things that stuck with me that were kind of funny. And there's just a lot of different things in the book. As a reader, I love to read a book that has a lot of different things going on, some suspense, it'll make you cry, laugh. And so I incorporated that as an author as well. So
1: where can people then connect with you and find your book, Angela?
0: Um, I am on uh, Instagram threads and X uh, at Angela. And uh, that's L A N G L O I S A N G E L A. And do you have
1: uh, another book in the works now? Have you moved on to your next story?
0: Um, I have the beginning stages of it. Um, but this book also, it is available, what the three of them do is available online um, in various sources, including indigo.ca, amazon.ca, books.freezenpress.ca, sorry. And then it's available in ebook format, also on Kobo and Kindle. Incredible.
1: Okay, we're going to put the link for that then uh, when this goes live on our blog post. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Angela. Thanks for having
0: me, Candace.
3: More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. You me, and my whole life
2: just for you. As we
1: continue to adjust to our post-pandemic world, many of us are reflecting on the resilience and adaptability required to thrive in these uncertain times. This is especially true for women entrepreneurs who have faced unique challenges during the pandemic from juggling business demands with personal responsibilities to dealing with the financial implications of SEBA repayments and an unpredictable economic landscape. Today, I'm joined by Chris McMartin, a passionate advocate for small business success to discuss the resilience of women entrepreneurs and explore strategies for sustaining and growing their businesses in this new normal. And I, I hope this is not normal, Chris,
7: but welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Candice. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here.
1: So can you share some of the biggest challenges women entrepreneurs have faced during the pandemic and how these challenges have evolved as we move into our new post-pandemic
7: reality? Absolutely. So I think that perhaps the challenges women entrepreneurs have faced have maybe been amplified during the pandemic, but I don't know that they're new. If I'm being honest, so what we've discovered with, um, you know, I work with the Scotiabank women initiative and what we've realized is that what the three main things that women entrepreneurs are looking for or struggling to find is mentorship, education when it comes to their finances, uh, and access to capital. So I don't think those were necessarily caused by the pandemic. I think they were here before, but I definitely think that they were amplified. Uh, and I think that, you know, rings true for a lot of things that were amplified during the pandemic, right, for a lot of us. So what I will say is that I I think the fact that a lot of individuals had to go at it on their own and had to quickly pivot their businesses with maybe very little education on how to do so is where we saw that amplification.
1: Yeah, and at the time sort of we were all dreading, and myself included, uh, the end of SEBA and the start of those repayments have sort of added that extra financial strain. So how can women entrepreneurs navigate these added pressures while keeping their businesses afloat?
7: Absolutely. I think that's a great question. And, and what advice I will give is just that, is that get advice from the experts. So it is important that during any stressful time as an entrepreneur, that you're leaning on your experts, lean on your advice team, have your board of advisors, whether you have an official formal one or not, have your board of advisors ready at hand to ask those important questions to and really come up with the strategy that's best for you because each business is going to be different. Each entrepreneur is going to be different. So don't shoulder that stress by yourself, get your board of advisors together and make sure that that board of advisors includes your bank advisor. I think that that's an advisor that's often left out. And I think it could be one that's most valuable, especially in times like now. I think it's important that you have that relationship with your banking advisor to say, here's where I'm at. Here's where my repayment is at. You know, here's where I want to be. And here's what's the art of the doable. How can we get there? Show me the way. What are my options? And so I think that's an important step. And I think being open and honest with here's what I can do and here's what I can't do. And here's where I want my business to be is the only way to get there.
1: Yeah, and I don't want to go too deep into the weeds here on banks, but, you know, I think people sort of have this perception that banks are bad and evil. And,
7: you know, the, the reality sure. is they don't want to see you go under either. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And that's where I say that, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm like, it's all about the bank. It, I mean, it's not. The reality is, is that your bank wants you to survive when it comes to your business like that. That's the reality. Right. So so bringing them in to say, listen, here's my strategy. Here's my goals let them help you define what that plan looks like, as well as your advisors are the first place you should go for advice on who do you add to your board of advisors. So maybe your bank advisor says, here's what I can do. But here's the missing piece. And I know someone else who can do that. Like as an example, as part of the Scotiabank Equipment Initiative, we have a partnership with pocketed. And I'm just giving that as an example that that's a you know, a grant service platform. So maybe that's just the amount that you need. Maybe that's the partnership you need. But without sitting down and talking to your advisor who knows your whole plan, they wouldn't be able to point you in that right direction.
1: And in your experience, what are some effective strategies then that women entrepreneurs have employed to adapt their business models to Mm. the changes we've seen?
7: Yeah. I mean, how often have we seen it, whether serious or at all in joking that pivot, pivot was the word, right? Of COVID. It's all about the pivot. Um, I don't know how many memes I saw with the friends, you know, pivot, <laughs> couch, right? So um, I, I would say that some of the strategies I have seen, I've seen a couple, but some of the most effective strategies I have seen is one, just being open to the possibility. So being open to the idea of, How can I reach my clients and how does that look different and how can I make it happen? I've seen individuals who were not comfortable on social media, who were not comfortable using virtual platforms, who just said, I can do this. I can do this and and I'm going to learn how and I'm going to do it and I'm going to find a way to get in front of my clients or potential clients. So being open to learning new things, super essential for that pivot. The other thing I will share is that using your network. So this is a time when your network came in so handy because maybe you're not the expert on how to make the change you need to make. And that's okay. Maybe you know someone who is. And just because you're not the expert about whatever pivot you need to make, someone can help you while in turn you may be able to help their business. So I think I saw so much phenomenal networking with I mean, women entrepreneurs is to me, if you've heard me speak before anywhere, that's the vibe. Like there is no better vibe than women entrepreneurs and the way that they can just come together and share their resources. And sometimes the resources simply the knowledge that they have, but the way they share their resources with each other is so impactful. So I think that's the way I've seen the most effective is just getting together and sharing that knowledge component and helping each other be better and more effective.
1: Oh, we are so on the pa- same page with this. You know, I know it's trite and it's one of those cutesy little sayings, but I really do believe, you know, that your network is your net worth.
7: Yes. Power of connection. It's it's absolutely, I say all the time, my superpower is connecting. The best word I heard last week, one of our executives actually a woman in leadership shared a great word. She said she made it up. (laughs) She said, it's roomtastic. And I was like, I have to know what roomtastic means. And she said, those are the people that walk into a room and just own that room. They're confident and they're sharing and they're learning and they're connecting immediately. They are roomtastic. And I was like, that's my word from now on. I love that. And the pandemic highlighted the importance of digital transformation
1: for businesses as well. So what advice do you have for women entrepreneurs looking to enhance their digital presence?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So what I would share is, again, it's all about your knowledge. So get out there and learn. There are so many things that you can learn. And a lot of time I speak to entrepreneurs, especially I will say young women entrepreneurs or or I should say young in experience, young as in starting out new businesses, not necessarily in age um where they'll say like well i you know i don't know how to use that platform or i don't have a lot of money to invest to learn how to use that platform and and what i would encourage is it doesn't always take money there are so many opportunities out there for, you know, a free class here, a free workshop here, or bring a friend and it's 50% off for this class or, you know, just, but get out there and use the network that's available to you. And there's so many programs available that are offering these resources to learn these digital platforms that are making women more successful through, through digital, right? So you can learn these new skills. And I would also share that just don't try and take it all on at the same time. Don't try and learn 12 new platforms today or 12 new digital skills or, or you know, decide which two maybe are going to be the most impactful for you and then start there. Don't yeah. overwhelm yourself.
1: Absolutely. And you can spread yourself too thin.
7: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I already know that I did not allot enough time for you, Chris. So. <laughs> I wish I had more time because I could keep we'll have, do a part Abs- we'll have to do a part two. We'll have to do a part two. Absolutely. Uh, great, great tips. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. This was delightful.
7: Oh, Candice, I, I really appreciate it. I love the messages that you're sharing. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you.
1: That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region.
3: Previous episodes of What She Said on 105.9 theregioncom